Hello, Summit Church. I want to say a special hello and a special shout out to our uh, campuses, uh, North Raleigh Campus, our Cary Campus, uh, North Durham Campus, West Club Campus, Briar Creek South, and by faith, the Chapel Hill Campus, which is not officially meeting yet, but uh, I'm speaking to you by faith because faith calls into existence those things that are not as if they were, and so I'm going ahead and speaking to you as if you exist. Uh, we are one church that meets in several different locations. This is week number two for us of a study we are doing through the Bible on the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it to the book of Luke. We're going to be between there and Acts, and we are, are tracing a theme here through the Bible that is exhilarating and that is exciting, at least to me and I believe to many of you. One of the reasons that Jesus died on the cross was so that you could be filled by the Spirit. That's what the book of Ephesians clearly tells us, which we will get to in weeks to come. Uh, but this is one of the things that Jesus shed his blood for, for, for you. And so this is very important, this topic that we are discussing. I asked you a few weeks ago how many of you lean more toward the charismatic side, and then I also asked how many of you are more, you know, a, a little less on the charismatic side. And some of you were courageous enough to raise your hands and pick a side, but a bunch of the rest of you looked around nervously at what everybody else was doing to get kind of the general consensus of the room before you chose a side. Uh, for those of you that did raise your hand about being a charismatic, uh, or maybe your hand was just still up, you know, kind of from worship or whatever, but for those of you that did raise your hand, I have very good news for you, great news in fact. That is that Jesus and the apostles were charismatics, all right? So I'm going to try to show you that today. And for the rest of you, uh, I'm going to try to show you that if you really understand the word charismatic, you'll see that it is impossible to be a genuine follower of Jesus and not be a charismatic, at least in some sense. Now, there's going to be variations on what we think that looks like in action, and we're going to talk about those in weeks to come, but essential to being a Christian is operating in the power of the Spirit. Now, some of you immediately, when I start talking about this, you're like, charisma, what? What, what are you talking about? Um, the word charismatic is a, is, comes from a Greek word, charismatai, which means simply a gift of grace. A charismatic is one who operates in the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the word has become associated today in kind of our common parlance with one stream of the church, uh, one type of church that is characterized by really emotional Christians and really emotional worship, you know, people raising their hands all the time. And I know that for some of you that are not from that kind of background, that might freak you out a little bit. And you're like, I don't know if that's me. And, and uh, you come here and there's people with their hands in the air. Um, I understand I came out of a very traditional Baptist uh, background. And that wasn't something that we did at my church. In fact, I've told some of you this before, but my first experience after God had called me into ministry being in a you know, non-Baptist context, I was at, speaking at this, I think it was a prayer conference, and there were a couple hundred people there. I was really young, a couple hundred people there from different denominations, and there was a woman um, in the middle of my talk, about three rows back, I noticed she kept getting this pained look on her face and kept putting her hand up like this. And I kept looking at her thinking like, she's got a question, you know, but this is a really inappropriate time to ask a question because I'm in the middle of a sermon. Um, you know, so I'm looking at her, I'm like, what's wrong with this lady? Um, and then, you know, this pained look, I was like, is she, does she disagree with what I'm saying? Does she want to raise her hand and challenge me? Does she have gas? I, I, I'm just not sure what's going on. So finally, I, I probably, I was really irritated. I finally stopped and said, what? Um, you know, do you have a question or whatever? And she got this, just the, this ghostly white, 
uh, face, you know, this look on her face, and then it just occurred to me, I was like, you idiot. She was, she, she's a charismatic. That's the way that she says amen. She raises her hand like that. That's what she was doing. She was testified. Um, so I know that that confuses some of you, and you, that's what you think when, when we say the word charismatic. Uh, for some of you, you know, the word has scary connotations that go with it. A lot of times that's what we associate. You're like charismatic. Those are, you know, people that do crazy stuff. We're like, you know, we're going to be pulling out the snakes here in a minute. Um, for the record, just so you know, we do not do that at our church. So if you brought a snake this weekend, you keep it in the bag, all right, because we are not going there. Um, that is unfortunate that the word has really been regulated to only one stream of the church because every Christian is supposed to move and operate in the power of the Spirit. Now, we might, again, come to disagreements about what that looks like exactly in action to be charismatic, but whether or not we are supposed to be charismatic is not in question. So, when I say that I want all of you to become charismatics, I do not mean, okay, that you're going to all go out and get a Benny Hinn tattoo and a charismatic haircut. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I'm not saying that at all, all right? I'm not talking about you necessarily learning how to speak in tongues. That's not the goal of this series. What I do want you to do is discover the power that God has made available, not to a select group of you, but the power that God has made available to all of you. Because there is an extraordinary power, a stream of power that runs throughout the Bible that I want you to be able to tap into so that whether you're parenting your children, loving your spouse, sharing Christ with the person you work with, or learning how to deal with sin in your own life, you are not facing this on your own. You are tapping into the limitless power of God that is at your disposal. That is what it means to be a charismatic. Again, now don't associate it with the, the, the way we painted it in one stream of the church. It is, just means that we live and move in the power of the Spirit. Today what I'm going to try to show you is that Jesus operated in the power of the Spirit. The Gospel of Luke, Luke goes to great lengths to show you that. Every gospel, every, every one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are obviously about the same character, Jesus, and they all tell the same story, and they don't disagree with each other, all right? So they're all, you know, telling the one story, but every one of the gospels has different themes that they will bring out about Jesus. Think of it like a diamond, you know, that, that you're kind of turning the diamond, and you're looking at it through a different angle. One of the themes that runs through the gospel of Luke is that the miraculous stuff that Jesus did the source of his power was the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that a lot of you hear that, and your initial reaction is, well, I thought the source of his power was the fact that he was God. Yes. But Luke goes to great lengths to show you that a lot of the miraculous stuff that he did, whether that's healing, seeing into people's hearts, preaching and praying with power, resisting sin, that he did in the power of the Spirit. Let me really quickly take you to whole crush depth in theology. You know what I mean by that? We're taking, we'll take the submarine down deep. I almost want them to get a, a little light in here for me so that when I go take us to whole crush depth, you can know it and then the lights start flashing. Just hang with me for about two minutes. And this is a very deep concept that is going to make some of your head hurts, but it's very important in understanding what we're talking about this weekend. The Bible teaches us in places like Philippians 2 something called the kenosis. And what it means literally is the emptying. And it means that when Jesus was on earth, he emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, of access to his godness. Now, that didn't mean that he ceased to be God. It just means that at times, he limited himself. He limited his access to his God power. So in other words, Jesus was not sitting around in middle school every time a question was asked thinking, well, I know the answer to that one because I'm omniscient. Jesus was not a baby in the crib contemplating, you know, 
um, quarks and the, the nuances of, of particle theory in physics. That's not what he was thinking when he was in the crib. He was thinking in the crib baby thoughts. And he was thinking when he was in middle school, sinless middle school thoughts. Now, some of you didn't know that was possible, did you? <laughs> yeah, but Jesus did it. Because he limited his access to his godness. That's why Luke 2.52 says, for example, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. You ever, think, you, ever, you ever read that verse and think about, like, how could God grow in wisdom? I mean, God is infinitely wise. The only way that verse makes, verse makes sense is if you understand that Jesus had limited his access to his infinite wisdom, therefore he grew in it the way that you and I grow in wisdom. Or when Jesus makes a statement like the one he does in Matthew 24, 36, when he says, I don't even know the day or the hour of my return. Only the Father in heaven knows that. And you read that and you're like, well, wait a minute. How could God not know the time of his own return? That's because Jesus had limited access to that knowledge. He limited himself, and that's what we call the kenosis. So here's the question. If Jesus limited access to his godness, how did Jesus do a lot of the things that he did? How did he overcome sin, for example? How did he resist the devil? How did he do miracles? How does he see right into people? How does he have such communion with the Father that he always knows exactly what to pray and exactly what to say at just the right moment? And Luke's answer is the power of the Spirit. And that is great news for you. Let me tell you why. Because you weren't born the son or daughter of God. None of you in here were virgin born. Your parents told you were, you were they were lying to you. Right? You, 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 you're sinful, just like me. Jesus did not do what he did in the power of his own godness. He limited his access to that. He did it in the power of the Spirit. That's the same access, that's the same power that you have access to. You see, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote what other book? What other book? He wrote the book of Acts, that's right. And they actually go together as kind of one unit. And what Luke does in Luke and Acts is he draws these parallels between the experiences of Jesus and the experiences of the early church. And he shows you that both are experiencing, in strikingly similar ways, the power of the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that one did, the other did. The church didn't die for the sins of the world the way that Jesus did. But what it does mean is that they were both operating in the power of the same Spirit. Some of you may never have seen this, honestly. Because you think of Jesus as primarily the one who died as a substitute for sins. And that is what he is, of course. But before he died as a substitute for sins, he also lived 33 years before he died. And there's a lot of things in those 33 years that we're supposed to learn from. And a lot of times we just completely overlook that. Then we jump right to his death. Even the ancient church creeds do this. The Apostles' Creed, for example, written, you know, 17, 1800 years ago, says this, the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and rose again the third day. You see that? We went, right, we went right from born to crucified. The 33 years of his life only get a comma. That's all they get. Right? Now, his death is important. Don't hear me taken away from that at all. Right? The de his death is the most important thing about his life. But if his death enables you to live, his life shows you how to live. And so what I want you to see is I want you to see some of these parallels between Luke and Acts because what Jesus was doing, he was leaving as an example and as a model to you. And I'm going to try to show you that. Before I take you into this, I feel like I need to review or at least clarify um, what we introduced a couple weeks ago. And that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now again, we just touched on it, but so many people struggle with this and they, they get it so wrong. Um, so let me just review it again or clarify it with you. Can we do that for a second? Um, the doctrine of the Trinity 
is that there is one God who has existed eternally in three persons. Now, people come up with all kinds of analogies to try to explain this. I heard a number of these when I was growing up in Sunday school. By well-intentioned people, by Christian people, but the analogies, while they might on some level be helpful, usually the analogies that we use for the Trinity do as much to mislead as they do to clarify. I'll give you a few of my favorite heretical examples that you've probably heard too, okay? Um, God is like water. Because water can exist as steam, he can exist as, limit, as, a, as a, a liquid, and it can exist as ice. So it's gas, liquid, solid. Therefore, God is like water. No, God is not like water because water does not simultaneously exist as steam, as liquid, and as a solid. What you've just done with that analogy is you've taught the heresy that we call modalism. Modalism is, you know, God like, like changes forms. Like God's like, hey, you know, like, Today I'm the Father God and I'm executing wrath and now I'm going to put on my diapers and I'm going to go as a baby and, and then now I'm going to be the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not what God does. He, he exists eternally as three persons. Um, he, here's another one I've heard. Oh, well, um, God is like, like, like me, JD. I am a, I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Uh, three different roles, one guy. Um, God's like that. No, no, God's not like that. That, again, is modalism. You got you know, him putting on the Father hat and putting on the Son hat, putting on the Holy Spirit. That's bad. Or I heard um, God is like the eye. You ever hear this one? God's like the eye. Um, you know, the eye's got different parts to it. It's got the iris, and it's got the cornea, and it's got the, the white part. I think that is the technical name for it, the white part. Uh, the sclera, I think, is actually. Um, I, so, you know, and only when all three are together is it the full eye. God is like that. No, God is not like the eye. Um, because every one of those parts is incomplete without the other one. Other ones, right? I mean, Jesus was not a third God and only fully God when he was connected to the other two persons. He was fully God. Um, so those are all like examples that while they're good natured, they just do a lot more to, in my view, mislead than they do to clarify. The only, the only analogy that I'm comfortable using is actually a biblical one. Uh, if you press it far enough, it also will break down. But again, it's a biblical one, so I think we're on safe ground. And that is the analogy of the word. Jesus is called the word of God. This is an analogy that the early church picked up. In fact, one of my favorite historical personages, a guy named Timothy I, was the first Christian to ever dialogue with Muslims. This is like the seventh century or eighth century. Um, and, and he used this analogy, and I thought this was fantastic. He said, he said, he said, he said when I feel something I want to tell you about, um, like if, if I want to tell you that I'm cold, then what happens is my mind thinks the thoughts, I'm cold, I form them into words, I am cold, and then my vocal cords vibrate the air so that it carries these vibrations to your ears, which tell me, which tell you that I am cold. Now, in the act of your ears picking up on those vibrations, you would never separate out my thoughts, my words, and the vibrations. They're all one act. You would never say, I heard the vibrations that JD's vocal cords made in the air, but I didn't hear JD. That would be ridiculous. In one sense, they're separate, but in another sense, they're the same. All right, he, said, he said, God the Father is like the mind, Jesus is the word, and the spirit is like the vibrations that carry the word to our ears. Now, again, that analogy, if you press it hard enough, will break down also, but it is a biblical one, so I would counsel you to limit your analogies to that one, and otherwise, just embrace the mystery that is the Trinity, all right? God the Father like the mind, Jesus like the word, the spirit like that which carries the, the, the knowledge to our ears, but there is one God who has existed eternally in three persons. I will tell you what I always tell you, if your head is not hurt, then you are not thinking about it correctly. Um, because it is something wonderful, and it is mysterious, and it is awesome, because it is God. All right, now, here we go. Let me lay out now for you the case that I told you I was going to lay out, and that is, really quickly, the parallels 
between Jesus and Luke and the church in Acts, because Luke is doing this intentionally. Now, let me say this also. Some of you, I love it that you take notes. All of you should take notes, okay? But if you try to write down everything I'm about to say, you are going to scribble your poor hand off. Um, so let me tell you that every week, I put the full transcript of the sermon, word for word, jokes, lame jokes, all of it, are in the transcript, and I make that available on my blog, uh, on the upper right-hand corner. It's always there on Saturday afternoon. You can have a word-for-word transcript of what I'm about to say or what I said. So I would tell you, if you're going to take notes, you just write down, for notes right now, just write down the warm and fuzzy things I say. Um, whatever makes your heart you know, feel happy, write that down. And then if you want some of the details that I'm about to share with you or that I will skip over, then go back and get the transcript and you can plunge in as deeply. With sources, it's awesome. Okay, here we go. Um, here's the parallels. In Luke, you listening? In Luke, Jesus' birth comes through the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Jesus' ministry begins at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. In the same way, the church is born in Acts 2 through the baptism of the Holy Spirit who descends upon them. Jesus' first sermon, Luke chapter 4, was about the, how the Holy Spirit had come upon him to set the captives free. Peter's first sermon was about how the Spirit's power had come upon the church to testify about Jesus. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, Jesus was driven out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan, and Luke makes sure to note, he's the only gospel writer to put this detail in there, Luke makes sure to note that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Acts chapter 4, right after the apostles um, do all the baptizing, they're dragged in front of the Sanhedrin which is a kind of temptation. And Acts 4, 8 says they were filled by the Holy Spirit that enabled them to respond to their accusers and to overcome that temptation. In Luke, Jesus gets sent out by the Spirit to travel around Israel preaching the gospel. In Acts, Jesus tells the apostles that the Spirit will come upon them to take them around the world with the gospel. Luke draws a number of different parallels between things that Jesus would do in the power of the Spirit and the same identical things that the church would do in the power of the Spirit. Here's a handful of them, okay? If you're going to take notes, jot these down. Miracles. That'd be letter A, miracles. Now, again, let me kind of flesh this out with you a little bit because I think it's, pretty, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to see. Uh, Luke 5, 17, Jesus heals a paralytic. But in Luke's account of this miracle, he includes the strangest little phrase. i put it up there for him. Luke 5, 17. And the power of the Lord was present to heal. Now, I, I used to read that verse and be like, well, of course it was present to heal. Jesus was there. But what Luke is showing you is that there was a power that was, Jesus would tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's power was there, Jesus would use that power to heal. So there were times when the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to heal. Well, in the same way, in the book of Acts, the power of the Spirit comes upon the church at different times, enabling them to do some pretty miraculous things. Sometimes it's to interpret tongues. Sometimes, you know, it's to see into heaven. Paul is able, through the power of the Spirit, Acts chapter 13 says, to blind one of the, oppos uh, one, one of the people who's about to persecute him. Um, the Spirit of God teleports Philip across the desert. Uh, all kinds of miraculous stuff. So miracles. Here's your second thing, prophecy. Prophecy, and by prophecy, I mean speaking God's blessing into people's lives or making God's plans known to other people. We're gonna do a whole week on this coming up in two or three weeks, so you know, I'm not gonna get into it really deeply, but what you see throughout Luke is that, is that the Spirit of God comes onto various people and God gives them wisdom and insight and they'll speak into somebody's life something God wants them to know. Then you see it happening in Acts. You see, um, for example, when, when, when the Holy Spirit baptizes the church, it says that the first thing they do is they begin to prophesy. 
And Peter stands up and says, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied about all of you, that you would, the sons and daughters would prophesy. You see all these places throughout Acts where the Spirit of God comes on somebody and they say, this is what God wants you to know right now. This is what you're about to go through and I'm gonna tell you what God wants you to know. Now, I know that some of you are like, whoa, miracles, prophecy, J.D., you're starting to freak me out. Are we about to become one of those kind of church? You know, or some of you are like, I got my snake right here in the bag. I, I was totally ready for this moment. Uh, keep it in the bag, okay? Um, I, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to explaining more specifically about how we are to react and interact with this, just not this weekend, okay? I promise I will do it in this series, but today I'm just trying to show you a pattern and make one point. This sermon's got one point, hallelujah, right? This sermon's got one point. I'm just trying to build up to that point, all right? So um, A was miracles, B was prophecy, C, preaching. Preaching, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, says about Jesus before his first sermon, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And guess what he does? He preaches a sermon. The same language is used when people in the early church preached. Peter was filled with the Spirit in Acts 2, and he preached, and 3,000 were saved. Peter and John, Acts 4, were filled with the Spirit, and they preached and defended what was going on in the church. Acts 4.31 says the early Christians were filled by the Spirit, and they went out everywhere boldly preaching the Word. Acts 7 says that Stephen was filled with the Spirit, and he preached a sermon that ended up with him being stoned, not stoned like the drunk sense, but stoned like the rocks coming at you sense. And that sermon was used by God to convert the Apostle Paul. Jesus told the apostles, in fact, they were to depend on the Spirit that he preached with when they preached. I shared this verse with you a couple weeks ago. It's one of my favorites as a pastor. Luke chapter 12, verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or even what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is, by the way, this is what I'm muttering to myself when I'm up here on stage and we're waiting on the bumper thing to end. I'm usually muttering to myself something. I, 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 I will say this. You can watch my lips. I'm like, I'm like, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that over and over to myself because I'm reminding myself that when I stand up here that I have absolutely no ability to do anything in your life. I cannot set you free. I cannot build your faith. I cannot show you God. The Spirit of God has to do it. And that doesn't mean that I don't prepare. I mean, I spend a long time every week, 15, sometimes upwards of 20 hours preparing a, a message but when I walk up on this stage, I lay it all down. And I'm like, God, this is what I plan. But what I plan, I can't do anything. So you got to do it. And if you got to put what I'm going to say aside and you start preaching, then that's going to be better for everybody. Because only the Spirit of God gives us the ability to preach and to teach, whether we're doing it from the stage or whether we're doing it with our children or one-on-one -on -one with a coffee shop with a friend. All right, here's letter D. Enacting justice. In acting justice, Luke 4, 18, Jesus started his first sermon like this. Listen, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What are all those things that he's talking about? They're what some people call justice, what others call mercy, it's getting involved in the pain of people's lives and setting them free from oppression and healing them where they hurt. That's how Peter summarized, by the way, Jesus' ministry. Acts 10, he says, Jesus went around Israel doing good and healing. Well, in the same way, the apostles themselves used the power of the Spirit to set captives free. Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16 is an example. Um, Paul goes into Philippi, and there's a servant girl there. The servant girl has a demon. 
And evidently it was an entertaining demon because the people who owned the servant girl used to set her up like a circus act and charge people admission so they could watch her, you know, froth at the mouth and say kind of crazy things. So Paul sees this, he goes over to her, he casts the demon out of her, which delivered her spiritually and economically, right? That was what the Spirit of God came upon Paul to do in the same way he comes on you. When you are involved, liberating people from injustice and liberating them from captivity, liberating them from pain, you are, or at least you can be, filled by the Spirit of God. That's what I tell my, I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, you know what? When, when you at school are sticking up for somebody that is being picked on, right, at that moment, the Spirit of God wants to fill you and wants to use you because that's the Spirit that Jesus possessed. He set captives free. He spoke liberty to people. He spoke life to people. And when you get involved with the oppressed, you have a special access to the Spirit of God, enabling justice. Um, here's letter E, filling with joy. The fifth thing, filling with, filling with joy. Luke 10, 21, Jesus says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever rejoiced in the Holy Spirit? Acts 2 says that when the Spirit of God came upon the first church, the result was a sense of awe that came upon every soul and a sense of gladness that filled their hearts. Chapter 2, verse 42. So the Spirit of God in Jesus' life and in the church life is giving them a sense of gladness and exuberance and joy. By the way, when a person is filled with the Spirit, one of the first characteristics and signs of that is joy. When a church is filled with the Spirit, its services are characterized by joy. Yeah, sure, there are times of solemn reflection, there's times of silence, there are times of the church that we ought to devote to repentance and mourning, but the dominant motif of biblical worship is joy. Psalm 100, come into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Psalm 35, 27, may those who delight in salvation shout for joy. Galatians chapter five, be filled with the spirit, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. A singing heart is a happy heart. Psalm 16, 11, in your presence God is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You cannot tell me you are in the presence of God if you are not overflowing with joy. That's why we say our worship services ought to be characterized by exuberance and shouting and joy. You say, well, that's just not my personality. Really. Joy is not your personality. Baloney. If I walked up to you this weekend and I'm like, hey, I have a message to give to you. It's that you won the lottery, $250 million. It's in a truck right out there, all of it, just in cash. Ain't a one of you at any of our campuses going to be like, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> you're going to be, you're going to be filled with joy, aren't you? The reason you're not joyful in worship is because evidently you put more value on $250 million, which can buy you a lot of junk, but can't really do anything for you eternally, you put more joy on that than you do the salvation of God, which is priceless and which endures forever. If you understand how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord, then what will happen is you will be characterized by joy. Yes, there are times of mourning, there are times of repentance, there are times of lamentation, but they are overshadowed by joy in God. 
Psalm 35, 27, made those who delight in salvation shout for joy. That's a command, folks. That's not a suggestion. That's not singling out one type of personality. Right? He filled them with joy. Here's the last one. In both Luke and Acts, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is given in answer to requests. Last parallel I'll give you. In Luke chapter 3, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says that the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus like a dove as he stood praying. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Same thing happens at the beginning of Acts. Jesus ascends back up to heaven in Acts 1.10 and tells them to wait for the Spirit. So you know how they wait? They go, Acts 1.14, into the upper room, and they pray. And they pray for 10 days. And then Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes upon them. Then Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved. Did you catch that, by the way? They go, they pray for 10 days, Peter preaches. If you read a sermon, it takes about 10 minutes. So they pray for 10 days, Peter preaches for 10 minutes, and 3,000 people get saved. Now, we pray for 10 minutes, preach for 10 days, and three people get saved. Just because we got the zeros in the wrong place. Same thing happens in Acts 4. The early church is in a prayer meeting, and God sends the Spirit so powerfully that the place is shaken. I love, Jesus, in fact, in Luke, and this is what you got to notice, instructs the church how to pray for the Holy Spirit. Because he's like, the Holy Spirit's going to be given an answer to prayer. Um, Luke chapter uh, 11. I love this verse. One of my favorite verses um, that Jesus spoke. What father among you, if his son asked for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's a logical question, right, you parents? I mean, how many you, you parents, your kid asks you for a chicken nugget? You're like, no, here's a tarantula. Uh-huh. Of course not. You love your kid. You, you don't, you know, when your kid asks for a chicken nugget, you don't give him a tarantula. And so what, what Jesus says is your father, the heavenly father, by the way, he says you're evil compared to him. You're evil, so God is good. So if you would give your kids something good when they ask for it, do you really feel like the perfect father when you ask for it? Do you see it? The Holy Spirit, you think he's gonna withhold that from you? By the way, we interpret that verse to be about all different kinds of prayer, and that's okay. I think you can apply it to all different kinds of prayer, but you see what he has in mind specifically when he tells you to pray for something? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You can apply it to getting the rays at work and talking about God's goodness in your life, but you shouldn't overlook what he's really saying here, and that is what he's expecting you to be praying for is the Holy Spirit, because ultimately the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift God could ever give to you. And so what you are doing is you are praying like Jesus prayed, you are praying like the apostles prayed, and God is giving you the manifestation and the outpouring of the Spirit. When is the last time you craved so badly to be filled by the Spirit of God that you pleaded with God for it? All right, so have I made my point? You're like, what what is your point? (laughs) The whole point is this. Jesus depended on the power of the Spirit. That's how he did miracles. It's how he did prophecy, it's how he preached, it's how he prayed, it's how he resisted sin, it's how he resisted Satan. If Jesus depended on the power of the Spirit, how much more should we? If Jesus depended on the power of the Spirit, how much more should we? Honestly, Summit Church, I never saw this. I thought Jesus did all that Jesus did out of his own godness. And you know what that made me do? That made me be like, I read read stuff about him in the gospel that, well, yeah, you can do that because you're God. I'm not the son of God. I'm the son of Lynn and Carol. So you got got one up on me. 
Jesus limited his access to his godness and he operated in the power of the spirit and Luke shows you that so that you could see that you have access to the same power that he did. By the way, this is not even just a, a new thing with Luke. Even the images that Luke uses in Acts for the Holy Spirit are images that go all the way back to the Old Testament. Two main images for the Holy Spirit in, in, in Acts. One is fire, one is wind. All right, fire. You know, the Holy Spirit comes on their head like a, a, like a tongue of fire. Fire was how the Israelite people always saw the presence of God. So that a pillar of, cloud, a pillar of fire led them by day, or led them by night, excuse me. When the, when, when the glory of God came down, it came down as fire. Uh, when Moses was called, it was a burning bush, which, you know, burned on the bush but didn't consume the bush. Now they got a fire in their head that evidently is not consuming their heads because they all stayed alive, right? So, so there was an image in the Old Testament. Um, wind. Uh, the wind was how, you remember, God's Spirit opened up the Red Sea so that they could cross over on dry land. Now that wind, that rushing wind is coming into their souls. What Luke is trying to show you is this is not something for one style of Christian, one branch of the church. This is something that runs through the whole Bible. The whole Bible has this one major theme, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. When you start reading the Bible this way, even how Luke ends Acts, we talked about, we have talked about this. You know Luke ends the book of Acts? He does it. He kind of ends it with the periods of ellipsis. You got Paul's in, you know, prison in Rome awaiting execution, you got the gospel spreading out throughout the whole world. And Luke was like, that's a good place to end it. Boom, put a period, close the book. You know, it, it, I've told you it ends like one of those Dukes of Hazard uh, episodes I used to watch where Bo or Luke Duke's in the middle, you know, in midair. What's going to happen to Bo and Luke Duke now? You got to come back next week and find out. It just, it doesn't end. That's the way Acts ends. It just ends. Why? Because the Spirit of God is like this rushing river running through the Bible, this wind that's blowing through the Bible. And Luke just ends it saying, this is how Moses did what he did. It's how David did what he did. It's how Samson did what he did. It's how Elijah did what he did. It's how Nehemiah did what he did. It's how Malachi did what he did. It's how Jesus did what he did. It's how Peter did what he did. It's how Paul did what he did. It's how Agabus did what he did. It's how Dorcas did what she did. It's how you are going to do what you do. And some of you have never experienced this kind of power because you thought Christianity is basically a moral code to be conformed to. It's a set of doctrines to be learned. And it is some of those things, but it is so much more. You can't read the Bible and not see that. And some of you have. I, I told our first service that sometimes, this is not a great analogy, but bear with me. When I read the Bible, I always think of like the story I heard several years ago um, about uh, these Japanese fishermen um, who were discovered about 50 miles off the coast of Japan hanging on to different pieces of the wreckage of a ship. The Japanese Coast Guard picked them up and the Japanese guys were complaining about a cow attacking them from heaven. And so the Japanese authorities said, well, clearly you've got to be lying to us because cows don't attack people from heaven. They, they thought these guys surely had to be drug runners or you know, maybe they were doing drugs while they were running drugs and that's what's making them talk this way. So they put them in prison. Well, um, uh, about a week later, a group of American Marines kind of sheepishly came forward after they heard about this incident and said, we might be able to explain this. Um, they said, so okay, so we were taking our, our B-1 bomber was taken off on one of these little islands over here and it's a very rural island. It's just got a, you know, an airport or a runway on it. And as we were ambling down the runway, 
um, this cow just kind of ambles across the runway too. And we're like, hey, you know, all we've had to eat are these MREs, meals ready to eat. Um, and so we're sick of those things. How awesome would it be when we get to our next destination to have a nice, fresh steak? So they went and they got this cow. They're like, whoever it is won't mind. And they put it in their, um, their B-1 bomber and they put it in the, the cargo area, specifically the bomb area. And they said at about 32,000 feet, the cow just started to go crazy. They said, we don't know what's happening. Maybe, you know, it's the air pressure or whatever, but the cow lost its mind, mad cow. And he said, we didn't know what to do. So he said, we just opened the bomb doors and dropped that cow. 32,000 feet, this cow dropped through the atmosphere. Now, I, I tell this story, and I'm like, there's no way this can be true. But I read it on the internet, y'all, and stuff on the internet's true. And so you just think about these Japanese fishermen, like, you know, fishermen, like, I think that's a cow. You know, I was like, I don't think it's not a cow. Then it hits their boat and destroys their boat. I don't know if it's true or not, but here's what I think of when I hear that. I always think sometimes when I read the Bible that it's like I'm like that cow. And here's that poor cow. He's the one I feel sorry for. Just, you know, eating grass, just minding his own business, and walks into the midst of this runway that has greater power than he has ever known was possible. And he gets taken up to heights that he didn't even know existed. And then he gets dropped. That part of the analogy doesn't work. But, but I, feel like, I, feel like, I, feel like, I feel like sometimes I'm reading the Bible and you see this, this spirit moving through it. And it just ends in Acts where it's like, dot, dot, dot. And what chapter are you going to write? And how's the spirit of God going to use you? And what's the spirit of God going to do in your family? What's the spirit of God going to do in your city, in your campus, in a place where you work? God didn't quit being God at the end of Acts. All the way through there. Some of you have never tasted it. All right, that's my point. My point for you this week. Jesus depended on the spirit. You should too. I want to apply it to you in two quick ways. That's my one point. I have two specific words for our church in light of that one point. Okay? Here it is. Number one. Most of us depend on the wrong source of power. Most of us depend on the wrong source of power. Where do you look for? What do you look to for power to overcome sin, power to resist the devil, power to be freed from the captivity of bad habits? How do you find the ability to forgive people when they crucify you? Where do you look for the power to see dead things come back to life? A dead marriage, a deadness in your family, a deadness in your spirit. Where do you look? for power. Jesus looked for power in all these things to the Spirit. You know how you develop the ability to forgive a husband who has betrayed and hurt you? It comes from the Spirit of God. That's how Jesus forgave people who were crucifying him. You wanna know how dead things come back to life in your life? It's not because you learn a new doctrine, it's not because you get greater willpower, it's not because you read a new book, it's because the power of the Spirit of God takes over in your life. You want to know where you get power for ministry from? You want to know where all of a sudden things start happening through you that you have a hard time explaining? You want to know when your kids start growing and developing? You want to know when people start coming to Christ around you? It's not because of might, not because of power, not because of intellectual might, not because of eloquence and power. It's because of the Spirit of God at work in your life. That's when it begins to happen. I feel like a lot of times Christian ministries... Churches like ours end up looking like, um, you remember the story 
in the Bible, the Old, Old Testament, about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel? If you don't know that story, here it is real quick. Elijah and the prophets of Baal are in this contest to see who the real God is. So there's 400 prophets of Baal, and there's Elijah, and they're like, one of which one's God, Jehovah or Baal? And Elijah says, well, i got a great idea. Let's go build an altar, whichever one sends fire down from heaven. That's the real God. Prophets of Baal are like, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go first. So they build their altar, and 400 of them start dancing around and doing this thing that they think will make Baal send fire down from heaven. They dance for half the day. Baal's not listening. So Elijah makes fun of them, which is one of the most entertaining parts of the Old Testament. Um, and then they start cutting themselves, and they start, like, dancing really wildly, and they think that if they can dance loud or dance, you know, vociferously enough and yell loud enough, then Baal's surely got to send down the fire. Right, so Elijah, after like a half day, and after he's you know, given every insult he can think of, um, he gets down on his knees, and he's like, okay, take, first of all, take my altar, and I want you to cover it with water. I want you to do that seven times. I want you to, 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 like, I want you to make it a water fountain where it's just overflowing with water. And he gets down on his knees, and he prays a very simple, like, eight or nine-word prayer that basically is like, God send the fire. <laughs> God sends it and blows it up. Now, I look at those two things, and I'm like, which one is the church more like today? Because we end up doing all this stuff, all this activity, and we're like, we just give a little more and yell a little louder and practice a little harder and give out a few more of this, then the fire's gotta come. The fire doesn't come from our activity. The fire comes very simply from God's spirit. And God's spirit can do more in an instant than we can do with 400 of us yelling our heads off all day long. My favorite part of that whole story, by the way, is, is 1 Kings 18, 39. Let me read this to you, I love this. When it's all over, and God had sent the fire, and the people, all the people that are watching are on their face saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. What they're not saying, this is my favorite part, what they're not saying is, dang, Elijah's a great speaker. How awesome is Elijah? Let's bring back some friends to hear Elijah. No, because it was so clear that God's spirit had done it. Not Elijah had done it. Did you know that God can be so powerful in your life that people don't even notice you anymore? Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, a lot of us think that good works end up glorifying us. But when the Spirit of God begins to empower you to do good works, they begin to glorify God. That's one of the ways you know that the Spirit of God is not upon you is because people are still noticing you. I want to preach, I want to minister in such a way that people leave not saying what a great preacher, they leave saying what a great God. Many of us have no access to that kind of power. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom, Isaiah 11, 2. He's the Spirit of revelation, Ephesians 1, 17. He is the Spirit of might and counsel, Daniel chapter 5, verse 12. That spirit of God is available to you as a mother, as a worker, as an employer, as a professor, as a student, as a preacher, as a pastor. You just gotta, Luke eleven thirteen. 13, you just gotta ask for it. Because God, your Father, will not withhold it. You just gotta ask. So my first word for our church is many of us are completely in the wrong ballpark, looking to the wrong source of power. Number two, some of us don't encounter the power of the Spirit because we're not engaged in the mission of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not like a magic amulet that you get, or a crystal, that when you get him and put him in the right place, he starts to give you good luck. The Spirit came upon Jesus and the church for mission. 
A lot of my charismatic friends, for example, a lot of my charismatic friends, they love Acts 2. You ever know they love Acts 2? Acts 2 is on the refrigerator. Oh, Acts 2, Pentecost, speaking in tongues, tongues of fire, that's awesome. And I always want to tell them, Acts 2 is awesome, but Acts 2 is not the first chapter in that book. Acts 1 is the first chapter in that book. And Acts 2 comes in response to Acts 1, and in Acts 1, Jesus said that the Spirit is coming for mission. So the whole point of Acts 2 is not for this ecstatic experience. The whole point is to complete the mission that's given in Acts 1. So what you see is that when the Spirit of God has come into you, you begin to do the mission that Jesus himself was on because that's why the Spirit was given. Let me ask you this. If Jesus had come as a basketball player, if for whatever reason Jesus thought that what the world needed was like the best basketball player ever, so he shows up as an NBA basketball player who's just like the greatest basketball player ever, he's the Lynn sanity of the first century, you know, he's just, he's just it. That if I said that the Spirit of Jesus was now within me, and he had come as the NBA, you know, awesome basketball player. Wouldn't you expect that my game would take a few steps up? Wouldn't you expect me to become a pretty spectacular basketball player? Yes, you would. If I said the spirit of Jesus, the unbelievable basketball player is in me, and then my game is as lame as it's always been, you'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, did Jesus come as a basketball player? No. Did he come as a wealthy businessman? No. Jesus came as one who was a minister and a witness to the power of God and one who poured out his life for others. Therefore, if his spirit lives in you, I would expect to see you as someone who is extraordinary at those things. Can I tell you what I don't see a lot of the Holy Spirit doing in Luke and Acts? I don't see him keeping the church from difficulty. Oh, well, I just pulled up at the mall. And the Holy Spirit gave me a parking space. Praise hallelujah. You know, it's just the favor of God was all over me. Please. In Acts, God parked Paul in prison. In Luke, God parked Jesus on a cross. I don't see in Luke or Acts, I don't see the Spirit of God making a lot of people wealthy. I think the Spirit of God can do that. I think he can. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the Spirit increases our ability to make money so that we can increase our capacity to give our lives away like Jesus did. So see, that's my question for you now. Do you even want his power? A lot of people are like, oh yeah, I want the Spirit, I want his power, I want me an Acts 2 experience, I want the Spirit of wisdom, I want to be able to succeed in my job. Why do you want his power? Why? That's a question I would encourage you to ask in just about anything you ask from God. Why are you asking for this? Even if it's physical healing, you gotta ask yourself, why are you asking for physical healing? Are you asking for physical healing just so you can go through a life pain-free? Or are you asking for physical healing because there's some things you want to do for the kingdom of God? Are you asking God to, rich, to make you rich and to bless you so that you can be like him and give even more away? Jesus was the richest person ever who gave it all away. Right, so are you saying, God, enrich me so that I can increase my capacity for giving? Or are you saying, enrich me so I can increase, increase my capacity for living? You see, there's a fundamental difference in those things. The Spirit of God is not on some of you. The power of God is not some of you on some of us because we are disconnected from the mission of God. Why are you asking for various things that you're asking for? Is it for your sake or is it for his kingdom and his mission's sake? Well, James 4, you have not because you ask not. But you also don't have because you ask, and you ask it for selfish reasons. You ask it because it's about your kingdom. So you said, God bless me, make me healthy, make everything in my life work, but it's for you. And my spirit comes for people who pour themselves out for my kingdom and my mission. 
Y'all listen, there is no disconnect between the mission of God and the power of God. The disconnect is between the people of God and the mission of God. If the people of God would ever embrace the mission of God, they would be filled by the Spirit of God and then they would exude the power of God. If you would embrace God's mission, which is to live like Jesus and to pour out your life like Jesus, you would be filled with the spirit that Jesus was filled with and you would exude the power that Jesus lived with. It's a power that heals your family. It's a power that heals your marriage. It's a power that changes your coworkers. It's a power that transforms your world. It's a power that sets a captive free. And it's available. It is available. But you gotta ask for it and you gotta be about his mission. Now, here's my last word. I told you those are the two words for our church, right? Review, my one point, Jesus depend on the Spirit, you should too. Two applications for our church, most of us depend on the wrong source of power, most of us have no access to power because we're on the wrong mission, right? Here's my last kind of concluding word for all of you. Every sermon series that we do, I always try to study the text. I try to let the text of Scripture drive my sermons so that I'm not coming to the text with an agenda, but I also ask the Spirit of God what there is specially that he has for our church in, that, in this series. And what the Spirit of God I think help me see in this series that what he wants this church to know, what he wants me, what he wants you to know, is the Spirit of God as a person. It's not a force. It's not a doctrine. Only. He is a person. And you have to begin to relate to him like a person, a person that feels emotion, a person that can be grieved, a person that can be angered and saddened. And what that means is that for many of you in this room, in the sound of my voice, or at our campuses, who have resisted God's will for your life, you haven't resisted a moral code. You haven't, you know, rejected just a, a way of living. You have rejected a person, a person who loves you, a person who created you, a person that you rebelled against, a person who came after you, came to a cross and died for you, and even now pleads with you to be reconciled to him. He is the father that you always wanted but never had. That's why Romans 5 says that the Spirit of God wants to come in and shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. It, it, the Spirit of God's not coming to make you just become more moral and teach you a few more facts and give you regular church attendance. The Spirit of God is coming to pour love over you. The love of a father who created you, died to reconcile you, and calls you back. Some of you have rejected Christianity. I know every week we have people like that here. I want to tell some of you, what you have rejected is not Christianity, it's a caricature of Christianity. And I need you to get beyond that and get to God himself. Jesus was no fan of religious phonyism. In fact, religious phonyism was a crucified him. And some of you have been exposed to a Christianity that was used like a weapon. It was used as a way to exclude people. It was used to justify hypocrisy, to justify racism, to justify all kinds of things that you know are wrong. And I need you to get beyond that. Because ultimately, this is not about a group of people or a system. It's about a person. And the Spirit of God wants to take the Father who created you. Listen, it's not about you becoming religious. It's not about you becoming a Republican. This is about you understanding that God created you. God comes after you. God wants to pour love out over you. That's what the Spirit of God comes to do, is reunite you to the person of God. And if you have never received that, John 1, 12, 
to as many as received him. Not to as many who corrected their lives or learned this, to as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Because they were born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of the Spirit of God. Have you opened your life to that person? Are you moving in intimacy and in the power of that person? All of our campuses, if you would, why don't you bow your heads with me? Holy God, I have asked, and I will ask again, that this be a landmark moment for our church. Where individuals in our church begin a whole new chapter of their Christian life where it's less about the doctrines, less about the moral code, and more about you. God, we know that the doctrines are important. We know that the morals are important, but God, that this would be a moment where they encountered you. I pray for individuals who are hardening their hearts and resisting you. God, let them hear the voice of their Savior. Even right now, who created them, who loved them, who came to earth and died for them and calls them, who knocks at their heart's door and says, come back to me. I pray that our church would begin a new chapter of its existence where we experience, we move in, we feel the power of your spirit raging within us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.